excited. I got to remember to hold this up to bring this message because Bob got me super excited last week. He um, talked about being wholehearted living. And I kept thinking and thinking about that the whole week. Sorry. I kept thinking and thinking about that the whole week. Um, and it really, it was impressed on me. And I thought, you know, I kept talking to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to share with the people? I mean, they're probably all Christians. I don't need to convert them or anything like that. And they, they're all moving along, hopefully, in their Christian walk. And yet I think um, wholeheartedness is something maybe we all struggle with at one time or another. We... Um, we can get off the track or we can, um, we need, sometimes we just need help staying wholehearted. And to me, wholeheartedness is um, actually another word for discipleship. Because one thing, there's one thing we can come and be um, converted and born again, but then there's another part of our walk that's called discipleship. And that's what we give our whole heart to. Does, do you follow me? Does that make sense? In fact, you know, a lot of people think that Jesus said, go out and make converts. And what he actually said was, go out and make disciples of all nations. The scripture is, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go th therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what this says to me is we have a, we have a responsibility to not just bring evangelism and the gospel and the good word, but to also bring a message of discipleship, that there is actually an um, ongoing process of discipleship that starts and doesn't end until maybe we get to heaven. Does that make sense to you guys? Um, it's kind of like, I look at it this way. I have two, I have two friends whose sons are going into the Marine Corps. Um, Jim and Kelly Matthews, they have a son named Jacob. He's in boot camp right now. Then I have another friend, um, her name is Margaret, and her son Preston actually would come over to my house when he was a little child and play with Emma, and he's in the Marine Corps right now. And I think about kind of what the military does to soldiers, recruits, is they take people that are completely, usually undisciplined or not disciplined in the ways of the military, um, kind of unformed, and they take them and they put this through this very rigorous training, and they kind of change them from one person to another. Um, I imagine that Jacob, Matthews, and Preston were at home the week before they went to boot camp, probably playing video games and eating all kinds of junk food and sleeping 12 hours a night and kind of doing whatever they wanted to do. But when they got to the Marine Corps, all of that changed, right? The, the, um, the drill sergeant was on them beginning to change them into something else. Now, I'm not here to say <laughs> that the Christian life is like boot camp, okay? Please don't hear me say that. But what I do want to say is there is a process that we all go through from being changed from an old creation into a new creation, and it's a lifelong process. And it's something that we have to agree with and participate with, okay? And it's we can decide to be baby Christians our whole lives if we want to. We can have 
um, fire insurance, as people like to call it, but that is not God's will for our life. We are chosen to be disciples. We are chosen to live our lives like Christ and to actually wage a war, so to speak. Although I don't want to say that boot camp is what the Christian life is, I will say this, we are in a war. And we need to be equipped with weapons to fight that war. And that's what discipleship does, is equip us with weapons to not only heal us, but to propel us into a battle, okay? So, I mean, our, the, the boot camp doesn't go very far, but it goes far enough, all right? The decision to become a Christian is a decision to live a changed life. I'm all about grace. I want to teach grace all day long. I want to teach that we are, we are new creations. There's nothing we need to do to earn our salvation. But I also want to teach this. There is a cost to being a Christian. There is a paradigm shift that we participate in if we're going to do this thing the way it's supposed to be done all right God's not going to do it against our will he's not going to make us be better disciples or learn or engage or do any of that but he is calling us to a changed life and if we want to take what we're doing seriously if we want to be good marines we're going to participate in what it takes to do what God's called us to do and that's something that is actually um, a part an effort on our part You know, um, Rick Warren says it like this, from the purpose driven life, we were created to become like Christ. That's actually part of our purpose is to become like Christ. But I like how um, Bill Johnson says it. He says we are supposed to be absolutely abandoned to Christ, abandoned, so much that we are not seen but Christ inside of us that we look more and more like Christ every single day. We become abandoned to him. And I think one, there's three things I want to talk about that help us on the path of discipleship. The first one, and it's not first in priority, it's just number one, is to cultivate authenticity. And I think what this means is we have to come to the place where we are, and this, I'm going to read, Bob, what you sent me. We come to the place where we accept who we are in the Lord and stop trying to please man and stop trying to live up to the world's expectations of us. Bob sent me something really good today. And I thought this was really interesting. On the day of your earthly birth, you were given a last name based on the family you had been born into. You didn't have to pass a test or demonstrate basic skills to be given that name. When you behaved poorly, no one took your last name away. There, there may have been consequences for your actions, but it did not change who you were known as. In Christ, we were birthed into a new life and a new identity. When we were born again, our family name became accepted in the beloved. Being accepted in the beloved is not something you achieve. It is who you are. It's as if God issued you a new birth certificate, and this is now the name he knows you by. Our journey is to receive and respond to our first and true identity in Christ, learning how to live and thrive in it. Such an excellent, excellent teaching. And what, what I think happens is a lot of us, 
for one reason or another, live from a place of fear of man or fear of the world or just fear in general instead of living from a place of identity, living from the last name that God gave us because he adopted us, not because of anything we did, but because of who we are. We're afraid to walk in our true authenticity because of what the world might say. And I think one of the first things to do to become a disciple or to go further along in the discipleship um, road is to throw off the fear of man. And that's a big deal, right? That's, that's everything to do with acceptance, um, success. All of our identity is wrapped up into this. I remember when I first got divorced, and this happens, I imagine, maybe Joanna, you can back me up. Whenever you get divorced... Again, I imagine. I've only been divorced once. There's a huge blow to your identity. Huge blow. All of a sudden, you you were married. Now you're not married. In fact, you've been divorced and you've been rejected if it was against your will. That, That beats at your very identity, the authenticity inside of you. And all of a sudden, you don't feel good enough. What does the world think about me? Am I a loser? Am I... Um, do, does anybody want me? And, and you begin to run through your head all the different things that maybe you need to do to become acceptable and seen as desirable to the world. That's what the enemy wants to do to us all the time. It says you're just not good enough. And, and if you would look like this person and act like this person and make this kind of money, then you might be good enough. And I think to be disciples, as we go into our walk of discipleship, we have to throw that lie off. We have to throw it off violently. We have to be aware of that lie in our life over and we have to evaluate it. What are my my actions? Why am I doing this? What is it coming out of? Is it coming out of a place of true authenticity or a place of fear? You know... um, I think to be authentic, we have to choose courage sometimes. We have to do the scary thing, the thing that nobody else understands or agrees with, but we still have to do it because God's called us to do it. You know, this is what Rick Warren says. I love it. Christ-likeness is all about transforming your character, not your personality. We keep our personality. Our character becomes sanctified. You know, um, I was... was, um, doing a little research on Bill Johnson because, of course, my daughter's going to Bethel, and, of course, Jane was looking at that. And, um, you know, he is a fourth-generation preacher, I think, fourth or fifth. And he, pr- he was preaching in Weaverville, California, for a couple of many years, like 15 years or so. And then he was offered the position at Bethel to be senior pastor. And he said, the only way I'll come to Bethel to be your senior pastor is if you guys can get on board with my vision, which is a vision of revival. He has a vision and a call to revival. That's what's been placed on his heart. And so they agreed to it. And as soon as he came on staff and began implementing and walking in his identity and his authenticity, they lost 1,000 people. A thousand people from their congregation. I don't know how big their congregation is, but it doesn't matter. A thousand people is a lot of people. And when you lose a when you lose a thousand people because they don't like what you're preaching, that's a big blow to your ego. That's hard to stay the course because you got people. I'll just be frank with you. That's a lot of money. 
you're losing money. A thousand people's money. You're losing approval. You're getting a lot of pressure because you're like, well, maybe what I'm teaching isn't what people want to hear. Then you have to ask yourself, well, am I supposed to preach what people want to hear or am I supposed to preach what God wants me to preach? I mean, you just go through it all in your head like crazy. But he stayed the course. And I want to tell you something. He has changed the landscape of Christianity in America. I was just reading an article in um, Christianity Today, which is an evangelical article, uh, magazine, not particularly charismatic, and he's definitely from the charismatic side of town, right? And this um, guy went out there who was uh, Presbyterian, a Reformed um, Christian, and went out there, and he just kind of described his experience at Bethel. And, and regardless of what you think about Bethel, I don't care what you think about Bethel, what I say is that man's got courage. That man is brave. That man is walking in his authenticity, in his identity. He's doing, I mean, he, and they do crazy things out there. They throw themselves on graves and, and try to soak up people's anointing. They try to raise people from the dead. I mean, there are people in Reading that love the Bethel students and hate the Bethel students. <laughs> there's, it's funny, there's one bridge, I think it's really close to my daughter's apartment, where um, they have actually banned, this is funny, the city of Reading has banned anybody from praying for people on that bridge. Because what happens is they have so many students at the, at the um, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and they're supposed to go out and pray for people that they kind of congregate at these well-known places, and one of them is called the Sundial Bridge. And so they would go up to a person in the Sundial Bridge and say, can I pray for you? Well, this person might have had 10 other people already ask them that question. They're sick of that question, right? So they actually put a sign on that bridge that says you can't, you can't talk to people on the bridge. And I thought that was funny, but what a cool sign. There's so many people praying for each other, they're driving us crazy. How cool is that? That is, that's just awesome. You know, my daughter, bless her heart, she's going out to Bethel, and there's people in her family who don't understand it. They're like, why aren't you going to a four-year college? Why are you wasting your time and your money going to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, which some pers one person called it a school of witchcraft, you know? And she's, her, she's, her heart hurts, and she's upset that people don't understand why she's doing it. I said, babe, you've got to do what God's called you to do, and you let all the chips fall. You let God deal with those people, but you do what God has called you to do. You have to be brave. If we're going to walk this spiritual walk, there are times we've got to pull our big girl pants on, big boy pants on, and we have to be brave. And, it doesn't, and sometimes the people that are closest to us are the ones that can't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, but it doesn't matter. That's part of being a disciple. Pardon me? Well, and you know, here's the other thing, you guys. I want you to take a look at some of the people in the Bible. Let's look at Peter. Denied Christ three times. Was a fisherman, a blue-collar worker. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't um, anybody of royalty. He was a blue-collar worker. But I want to tell you something. When he went all in with the Lord, he was the one who ushered in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit. He is one of the most well-known disciples. Let's look at Paul. Paul is an itinerant minister that gave his life to the Lord. Probably one of the most well-known disciples of the Bible is Paul. When we are all in with the Lord, when we're, when we're brave and we let God tell us what we're doing, all kinds of things can happen.
All kinds of things can happen. It's not our place to know what the next thing is. It's simply to say, I'll follow you, Lord. I'll do what you've called me to do. Bill Johnson said this. I love this. My greatest breakthrough in ministry came after attending two conferences in 1987 put on by John Wimber. I realized I needed to put a demand on what I believed. My risk factor had to line up with the boldness of my beliefs. As I did this, there was an immediate change in my ministry, and we began to see healing and miracles increase. I think that's cool. I just think it's cool. The second thing I want to talk about is cultivating trust and gratitude. And I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm going to talk about money. I don't want to talk about money, but I'm going to talk about money because money is a big deal in our culture. We are not on the barter system. We actually have physical money that we spend. And if you're like me, you've got Bitcoin, you know, fake money, cryptocurrency that is not related to any kind of country. But money is a big deal. I want to read to you what the Bible says in Luke 12, 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Or, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then our favorite verse, loving money is the first step towards all kinds of trouble. Some people run after it so much they have given up their faith. Craving more money pushes them away from faith into error, compounding misery in their lives. 1 Timothy 6.10, that's from the Passion Translation. This is just another area I want to talk about for discipleship, you guys. And this is another area of trust. It's one thing to trust God, um, you know, going out and praying for revival and whatever. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is, to use that phrase. Money's a big deal for me. I'll tell you this. Just like baptism is a sign to the world of dying to the old life and being raised to the new life. And just like communion is something that we practice over and over to remind us of what Jesus did on the cross, giving our money, giving God's money back to him is another practice that we participate that reminds us who's in charge of our life. See, it's, again, being a disciple is about being all in. It's about saying, okay, the world does it this way, but God says do, do it this way, and that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to believe him, and I'm going to believe his promises. You know, when I was um, married before, my husband had a pretty good job, a secure job, and it was a steady job from paycheck to paycheck. And so tithing and giving was something that I did as part of my budget. I just kind of played it into my budget, right? It wasn't as hard as it is now. It's harder now. Back then, since I knew 
what my paychecks were, what our paychecks were from paycheck to paycheck, I felt a little bit of, I don't know, control or security or something. And so giving first fruits, it was a first fruits, was still a little bit easier. Now that I'm self-employed and I don't know where my next paycheck is coming, writing a tithe check off the top of that is real scary. And it's an act of trust and an act of faith every single time I write that check. And I'm not saying that to you for any other reasons to say, I believe that if we're going to be free in our finances, if we're going to be strong in the war, this is an area that we got to get a hold of. I don't bring it to you for condemnation. I don't bring it to you for anything except I believe the Lord wanted me to share it. But I do believe that first fruits and um, the, the, the idea of first is all throughout the Bible. There's firstborn, there's first fruits, there's a first of creation. There is something about saying, God, I recognize you are king of all. I live at your leisure. I enjoy everything I enjoy because you give it to me. How do I respond to you? I'm going to respond to you by giving to you out of my first fruits. It's something, it's a, it's a spiritual, not only discipline, because it is a discipline, it is a spiritual reality that we have to get a hold of to go to the next level. And, you know, Rick Warren, bless his heart, he, you know, he wrote The Purpose Driven Life, and it was super popular, and it was a bestseller, and then had it movie and everything. He's become what he's called a reverse tither. He tithes 90% of his income and lives on 10. People ask me sometimes, well, how much should I give? And the standard answer is, how much do you want to be blessed? And while I don't believe there is a direct formula, you give this, God will give you that, because that kind of borders on that whole faith, um, name it and claim it kind of message. If you just sow into this ministry, then you'll get that. It's closer than what you're comfortable with. It's not exactly that, but it's closer than what you're actually comfortable with. I believe that when we, for me, I will say this, every single time I do that, it is a, it is a practice that I do that rebukes the enemy, rebukes the devourer. Every single time I say, God is Lord of my life in the area of finances, it is a statement to the enemy. The third thing I want to talk about is cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, some people think it's fruits. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's actually one fruit. It has nine characteristics. And if there's anything I'd love for you to memorize from the Bible, it would be these nine characteristics. Because this is what you line your life up with. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. If we're going to pursue and participate in becoming a disciple, we pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And yet at the same time, the fruit of the Spirit is something the Holy Spirit does inside of us when we say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. He begins at that time to cultivate fruit of the Spirit in your life. But one thing I think is really important that we have to do in order to cooperate with um, 
what the Holy Spirit wants to do is sometimes we have to look at those areas in our life that have been wounded and broken because they can be um, false strongholds for us. And they can become a default way of thinking and doing because we are doing it out of woundedness and or we're doing it out of how we were raised. That's why I like Celebrate Recovery so much. Celebrate Recovery has been such a fantastic program because it allows people to bring their woundedness to a really safe environment. And if you do it right, the Holy Spirit shows up and you don't have to do anything. You don't do anything except receive healing. But we have to all be honest with what our brokenness is. And we all have to realize we didn't come out of the womb having all our stuff together. And we didn't come out of the womb into a perfect family and into a perfect world. Every single one of us sitting here has wounds that we're dealing with and has dysfunctions and has strongholds that have gotten into our hearts deep down and we operate out of those wounds and strongholds. And I think if we're going to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, we have to be honest about that kind of stuff. We have to be honest about that. And we, and we pursue that healing. We say, Lord, root out of me what I have received as truth so that I can now move on from a place of wholeness and pursue and participate with the fruit of the Spirit. The other thing I think that we have to do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit is we have to obey. And this kind of goes back to, you know, I was talking about Bill Johnson doing what he was doing. But they're all, th last, last, was it last week? Two weeks ago when I talked about um, turning water into wine. The question was, when did the water turn into wine? When they put the water into the jugs, when they pulled the jug, pulled the water out, when they tasted it, when did it actually happen? And the answer is, it happens when you obey God. Joshua, when he was going into the promised land, now, if you remember your Bible story, when Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, God parted the Red Sea. The Israelites saw it, and they walked through, okay? So the miracle happened first, then the Israelites walked through. Well, Joshua, the Jordan River, parted too, but it didn't happen that same way. God said to Joshua, I'm going to part Jordan for you, but in order to do this, you need to carry the um, Ark of the Covenant with the... Um, priests carrying it. They're going to go first, and the minute they put their foot in the water, that's when the Jordan parted. It didn't happen before. It happened when they obeyed. And so sometimes we have to obey first in order to see what God's doing. That's part of our discipleship is to obey. It's flat out. I mean, I'm not trying to be all works-oriented here. I'm just telling you the way it is. If we're going to be good Marines, and here's the thing, you guys. This is where it works out. When they go to basic training, they're taught how to obey. They're taught the chain of command. They're taught authority. They're given the right weapon to fight the war. They're told when to eat and how to do it and all that kind of stuff for their own good. And part, we have to get a hold of part of us being good disciples is we've got to obey God even when it makes no sense at all. No sense at all we have to obey God. And the miracle follows. And the more we do that, the more we get a history of the Lord and the more our trust grows, right? The more we step outside of our comfort zone, the further our comfort zone, I mean, it gets bigger, right? The more we can do, the more we understand. Sometimes understanding comes after you do it, not beforehand. 
The other thing that I think we have to do, we have to let, you know, we're talking about wounds and all that kinds of thing. Another um, thing that gets in our way sometimes of participating with God in the fruit of the Spirit is our personality. We all have personalities that are not perfect. They've been um, influenced by this fallen world. And sometimes we have to look at our personalities and say, wow, is my default reaction, because that's my personality, is that um, exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is always our litmus test. And when we get angry and frustrated, impatient, upset, we say to ourselves, wait a minute, what does Bob say? We turn to the Holy Spirit and we say, Holy Spirit, I want to operate out of the fruit of the Spirit. What's my, what's my next move here? What's my next move? Do I, do I be angry? Do I, am I supposed to be impatient? Is that what's needed in this situation? How do I cultivate the fruit of the Spirit? I have to, I, I have to look at my personality and say, well, what's my personality uh, flaws in this area? That's why I like DNA of relationships. You know, one of the, um, one of my, if you do, one thing I love doing is called like DISC or Strengths Finder or that kind of stuff. One of my um, personality traits is called a high D, which is dominant. Dominant people can be very dominating sometimes. Dominating can be control. Dominating can be bossy. Dominating cannot be good. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes we need to dominate and get the job done. Other times, dominating people roll right over other people and are not operating with the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we have to say, what part of my personality needs to be consecrated before the Lord and let him come in and speak to me about this area? I think I've shared this story with you, but some of you probably haven't heard it. My son David, when he was 16 or 17, he worked at Toys R Us, and he had a Jeep. And I don't know about you, but my boys, no offense, seem to be a little more mm, um, not as safe on the road. A little, a little more crazy. Anyway, he um, pulled out of the pulled out of the drive where the the um, thing where the Toys R Us was and wasn't looking, and he ran into a lady, and they called the police. And I think it was his first accident. You know, he was at fault and, um, you know, wrecked her car and all that kind of thing. And he called me and he called me and he said, you know, Mom, I had an accident and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, first thing I think of is how much money is this going to cost me? There's my money thing, right? What's my, what's going to happen to my insurance? How much is it going to cost me? You know, I didn't even think about, was he okay? My first thing was, what the hell? You know, why, do you, why does he have to be so careless? Why can't he be a better driver? That's my first response. I'm just being honest with you. But as I was driving over there, the Lord was dealing with me. And he's like, I don't want you to talk to David that way. You know why? Because we all make mistakes. So when I got there and I saw him and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm okay, Mom. It was I didn't see her. It was really hard. And I just said, David, we all make mistakes. It's going to be okay. And I'm super proud of myself for saying that. Can I just tell you that straight up? Because it was not what I wanted to say at first glance, because that's not my personality. Mercy's not my number one gift. Can I tell you that right now? You know? Um, and so I guess I'm saying to you is if we're going to be good disciples, we need to be honest about our personalities. 
sometimes there's too much mercy and we have to have good boundaries. Sometimes there's too much dominance and we need to be merciful. And does that speak to anybody here? Hello? Yes. Thank you. Good. The other thing is we have to put on the character of Christ. We must want to grow, decide to grow, make an effort to grow, and persist in growing. We're changed by God's truth, we're changed by our failures, and we're transformed by our troubles. God uses all of those things, every circumstance in our life, to develop our character. And I'm just going to close with a couple examples here. You know, this, I thought of you, Bob. This is Rick Warren. Everything that happens to a child of God is father-filtered, and he intends to use it for good, even when Satan and others mean it for bad. I think about Joseph in prison, Joseph um, who became second in command for Pharaoh. I think about Daniel in the lion's den. I think about Paul in prison. All those people experienced tribulation and trial, and yet God used that for their good and for our good. And that's what he's going to do in our lives. Everything that we're going through, he's going to use truth in our life. He's going to use tribulation and our, and our troubles, our failures, the ones that we're responsible for. He's going to use all of that to develop our character because he's got an assignment for us. He's got an assignment only we can do. He's, we're, we're all undercover spies going into the going in to take the land, and we've got to have our weapons of war ready for us so that we can do the work that God's called us to do. And so that's my message on wholeheartedness. I hope that is something that related to you guys. I would love for you to um, get up with a couple people, share your prayer requests, your praise reports, and in five minutes we'll have a little bit of dinner. Does that sound good? You're welcome. You're welcome.